Radio. How the Postmodern Mindset is Destroying Modern Minds. A talk by Dr. Gary Johns at the Christopher Dawson Center for Cultural Studies 2017 Colloquium. Thank you for your kind invitation. Now, uh, this is a mystery to me. I have no idea who set the topic that I'm addressing today, but I'm grateful that you or I did because it allows me uh, a critique of postmodernism. I'd sort of been familiar with the, the concept over the years, but it, it made me read a bit more, which is not a bad thing. And it also uh, brought me, Paul, in your terms, uh, a new friend. And uh, because I read a great deal about the life of William Wilberforce, the great abolitionist, and uh, he gets a run in the paper because I, in a sense, hold him up as a standard of greatness, and I, I really loved reading about his life and the fact, of course, that he was a member of Parliament and he was able to, if you like, prosecute his case through the great uh, UK Parliament. So, um, wonderful title. Again, who thought it up? I have no idea. But uh, how the postmodern mindset is destroying modern minds. Now, I'm not well acquainted with school and university curricula uh, in the humanities and social sciences, at least in recent years. Uh, but I've read enough to judge that many students are fed a diet critical of much of what has gone before. Just as I was in the 1970s at Monash University and more recently at the uh, University of Queensland. And it's true to say it's common for lecturers and students to rail against the dominant view of the world. And I think that is as it should be. The trouble is that too many university lectures have, uh, have jumped straight from a grand critique of society and devotion to a grand plan for a future society, for example, Marxism, onto another bandwagon, postmodernism. So this leap, I think, stems from disappointment among intellectuals at the failure of the grand designs, or as some have called it, the emancipatory <coughs> projects within the modern era for the perfect society. And that includes fascism and Marxism, <coughs> and arguably, more recently, Islam. So, as if to hide their disappointment, postmodernists offer a salve. Now, at its most theoretical, postmodernism suggests that interpretations of reality are contingent on experience and knowledge, which in turn depends on the individual's place in society. In other words, things look different depending on who you are. Now, I think that's not an unreasonable insight. For instance, it explains to me why people vote the way they do, even though I could objectively measure that it's not in their own best interests. But this is the point at which I part ways with the postmodernists, 
which is pretty well at the beginning. <laughs> Many believe it is possible to prove that someone will be better off under some circumstances rather than other circumstances. The fact that people act on interpretations of reality does not impose an absolute or final limit to their knowledge. Postmodernism also tends to categorise experiences by identity, female, black, ethnic, gay, and so on. Now, the postmodern analysis, or arguably, to be fair to them, its misuse in the hands of those who find it suits their purposes, tends to understate the individual's ability to change or to act outside of an identity designation. It also undersells the genius of liberal democracy, which has created freedoms for all, albeit at different paces and to different degrees. Now, the big problem in postmodernism arises when identities are thought or argued to be permanent and that policies are based on the permanence of or even desire to be different. Differences become the goal and inclusiveness becomes the policy remedy. First, insist on the right to be different and then devise policies to make others accept the difference. Postmodernists argue that too often, history is seen as a singular trajectory to something better, call it progress. Now that may be a valid criticism of some versions of history, but progression looks singular in retrospect, not always at the time. The problem for our intellectuals here is that there is no new grand design on offer to compete with liberal democracy with a strong dash of the welfare state. Which brings us to the other element of postmodernism. Disappointment that the winning design, liberal democracy, is not good for everyone. Now, the observation has plenty of truth to it, and has led researchers to look afresh at history through the eyes of losers. A variety of allegedly repressed histories of modernity, such as those of women, homosexuals and the colonised, have been written. The purpose of these histories is to lay claim that modernism is, or was, patriarchal and racist, dominated by white heterosexual men. As a result, one of the most common themes addressed within postmodernism relates to cultural identity. Now, the danger inherent in the postmodern mind is that it starts out grouchy because it does not have its own grand design. Indeed, it disdains the idea because of the disaster of its once fated alternatives. And it picks away at the best design, and the risk is that it throws out the baby with the bathwater.
As someone recently remarked, there is not a shred of gratitude for the achievement of the liberal society. Liberty has shown the door and celebration of difference becomes a cul-de-sac. Postmodernism also tends to believe that dialogue across groups is not possible. That is, my reality is not your reality, or you cannot know what it's like for me, and so on. This is acute in the literary world where some are berated for writing about people outside their group. Of course, this silliness is easy to laugh off, but it exists, and it is a serious conversation in some university faculties and many literary conferences. How depressing this is. Postmodernism lacks historical knowledge and gratitude at that which has been achieved by mankind. It fails to appreciate the great achievements in liberty in recent times, and it underplays the source of liberty, that is, the Enlightenment and its precursors, and its close association with Christian theology and democracy, to which it is bound. It also fails to appreciate the vehicle of liberation, often white privileged males. The achievements of liberal society are discounted because of the identity of the achiever. It mistakes delayed or uneven shares in progress for systemic flaws rather than legacies of earlier cultures and systems. It also fails to account for the persistence of destructive or repressive cultures. Now, there is a second string to the postmodern bow. It is egalitarianism. For example, a postmodernist may argue that the US was not a good society until a black man was elected president. The same may be argued in the UK until a woman was elected. But somehow, the wrong woman got up. <laughs> Margaret Thatcher, and now, heaven forbid, Theresa May. Both Tories. So there tends to be a bias in the postmodern set that identity works only if it works for another project entirely, that is, the egalitarian project. I think the big contest today, in my world, is between liberty and equality. My value set is that liberty is essential, equality of outcomes is not. Equality depends a great deal on behaviour, and behaviour is to some degree independent of political form. The chances of attaining liberty and democracy depend a great deal on values in a society. As the economist Paul Collier argues, the transmission of culture from one generation to the next 
may lock a group or even an entire society into a dysfunctional state. An aspect of the European cultural transition analysed by the psychologist Steven Pinker is the decline in violence. In fact, it's almost uh, a definition of civilization. Now, as I was reading about William Wilberforce, I discovered that William Pitt the Younger was involved in a duel with a fellow MP in 1798 when he was the Prime Minister of England. <laughs> there are some opponents I would like to have dueled with <laughs> in the past, as long as they weren't uh, armed. Civilised societies transit from codes of honour, for example, duelling, to codes of justice. The transition in norms means that the obligation to avenge a harm passed from the aggrieved family, with the potential for vendettas, to the state. In some societies, however, this transition has yet to occur. The anthropologist George Foster suggested that development was frustrated by the belief that interpersonal relations were zero-sum. Some win, some lose, or some have to lose. Recent work suggests that a substantial proportion of the population of the Democratic Republic of the Congo, for example, views interpersonal relationships as zero-sum, privileging witchcraft over effort and luck as the explanation for success. This culture is alive and well in Aboriginal communities in remote Australia. And we idiots celebrate it. Then again, some cultures breed success. The wonderful Deirdre McCloskey, who has visited our shores on many occasions, in her book, Bourgeois Dignity, Why Economics Can't Explain the Modern World, suggests that the key to the European economic takeoff during what she describes as the bourgeois era was the dignity afforded and the liberty granted to innovating classes, mainly commercial traders. McCloskey's thesis explicitly counters the conventional account of progress in terms of the primacy of institutions, getting the rules right, and emphasises the emergent values of a middle class. She sees these new values as foundations for economic transformation. Nor is inequality proof of failure. Inequality is not the enemy. As the Nobel Prize winning economist Angus Deaton points out, inequality is part and parcel of progress. His book, The Great Escape, Health, Wealth and the Origins of Inequality, is the story of progress, cast, quote, as the endless dance between progress and inequality, about how progress creates inequality and how inequality can sometimes be helpful, showing others the way or providing incentives 
for catching up, and sometimes unhelpful when those who have escaped protect their positions by destroying escape routes behind them. End of quote. Now, only in the latter sense can inequality be said to be harmful. Now, to my observations over 40 years or so, the rich in Australia have never set out to destroy escape routes by, for example, destroying public schools and hospitals. As Deaton and Mankur Olson before him argue, quote, rent-seeking of an ever-growing number of focused interest groups pursuing their own self-interest at the expense of an uncoordinated majority, comma, may harm economic growth. What leftist acolytes fail to understand is that their supporters may not be so much victims as self-interested. Difference can be entirely morally based. For example, those who are aspirational place a high value on success. Aspirational people choose to work hard. People who work hard vote for lower taxes on return for effort. Conversely, non-aspirational people do not work hard and so prefer high taxes on effort. Hence, in a democratic society where taxes reflect majority preferences, there is a critical proportion of aspirational people above which the society adopts low taxes and below which it adopts high taxes. We could compare, for instance, the United States and Europe. We could also argue that Australia is heading towards the European existence. For egalitarians, and probably for most modernists, although for different reasons, such differences are uncomfortable to contemplate. So trawling for differences, especially difference-based on identity, as proof of society failure, may lead to illiberal policies. For example, taking more money from people, and it ignores the real reasons why some will continue to fail or remain different. It is important to understand how and why society changed for the better, especially those societies where all behaviour changed for the better, not just, or almost all, not just a privileged few. The fact that there may be lagging groups does not serve to prove that progress was not creating opportunities for both leading and lagging groups. An example. The Troubled Families Program, launched by the British government in 2011, for example, targets a mere 120,000 households that are collectively estimated to generate $9 billion a year in public costs. Understanding the behaviour of such households in the conventional 
rational choice framework of incentives and interests denies the influence of distinctive values and culture. It is time to recognise that culture matters and that there is no compelling reason to expect these processes to be benign, even in a liberal society. There is bad behaviour, or we might call it dysfunctional behaviour, among some groups, and changing morals can help, more so than mere redistribution or taxing the rich. We come to my new best friend, William Wilberforce. Postmodernists underplay the value to laggard groups of the changes that stirred society in the great liberal revolution of which William Wilberforce and the abolition of the slave trade was one. It is not just about a white male elite grabbing all of the privileges or extracting the wealth or labour of poor and repressed groups. I had the good fortune earlier in the year to debate the proposition of the abolition of Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act before a large audience at the University of Queensland. Now, one female student had the temerity to ask me and my fellow abolitionist, Professor James Allen of the UQ Law School, why middle-aged white men wanted the abolition of a protection against so-called hate speech, which she assumed would only ever be directed at women and other so-called minorities or powerless groups. We, of course, very gently, reminded her that free speech was the greatest protection for any group or individual and that historically middle-aged white men were frequently leading voices in the emancipation of oppressed groups. Had we the time, it would have been worthwhile recounting to her the story of the abolition of the black slave trade in which blacks, whites and Arabs indulged for centuries, but that only middle-class white men organised to abolish. Indeed, civil society activists, of whom I've been critical over the years for their irrational views and imposition on the taxpayer for support of matters that are doubtfully in the public interest, often remind me of the great work of church activists in the abolition of slavery. I should say Methodist activists, not all church activists. I agree, but there are differences they fail to acknowledge. Wilberforce had the great fortune to be white, heterosexual, wealthy, male and Christian. It's not the stuff of modern-day heroes. Despite these credentials, he did good work. <laughs> Wilberforce and his Methodist colleagues used British legislation in 1807 to abolish the slave trade in the West Indies and beyond. And in a separate act in 1834, 
800,000 slaves, mainly in the West Indies, were set free. Just in his lifetime. There were economic interests, slave traders and plantation owners in the West Indies, who opposed him. And part of the deal was this. England compensated slave owners £20 million sterling for ending their immoral acts. Wilberforce was happy with the deal. There were economic consequences for ending the slave trade, but of course the cause was unambiguously correct, the dignity of freedom. Not only did William Wilberforce help to abolish the slave trade indulged in by the British, but thanks to the British and its parliament and other institutions, much more is now known of the black and the white slave trade than would have been the case. For example, Arab, black and white slave trade, which in some places such as, such as Mauritania and Morocco existed until very, very recently and is still today denied among, for, for example, Islamic scholars. Contemporary scholars of the postmodern persuasion want no doubt, to be the new saviors, saviors, following in the tracks of the abolitionists. But they mistake fashion for substance, hoping to be in the vanguard of saving minorities when the minorities are no longer repressed en masse or by law. A more subtle reading of the influence of culture and behaviour suggests very different policy prescriptions than the current cries for restrictions on free speech, a la Section 18C, and snarling at white male privilege. It is not the slave traders and plantation owners who stand in the way of individual women, blacks and gays, but often programs that suit an egalitarian interpretation of human rights. Wilberforce in Parliament made the great and forceful statement, quote, Christianity has been called the law of liberty, end of quote. Wilberforce achieved not only the emancipation of slaved, slaves, he achieved a moral revolution. Now, from abolishing <coughs> Slavery, to a favourite subject of mine, subsidised free speech, about which I have written in this book. <laughs> Wilberforce made doing good fashionable. Indeed, doing good is now very fashionable. But is it unambiguously good? For example... In Wilberforce's time, black slaves returned to Sierra Leone, established a settlement of Freetown, and Haiti was granted its freedom. And these experiments to have former slaves establish their own nations did not turn out well. But this was not a reason to not grant their freedom. 
An unassailable moral purpose, such as liberty, can afford subsequent failure. Liberty means the freedom to fail as well as succeed. Today, doing good often has a less clear moral purpose, and any downside should be closely scrutinised. For example, is opposing mining in the third world good and moral? Well, the High Court of Australia thought so. An Australian charity, Aidwatch, which did no more charitable deeds than pursue this highly ideological point, that is, trying to knock out mining in the third world, in its campaigning, was held by the High Court of Australia, the case is Aidwatch versus the Australian Tax Office, 2010, to be entitled to free speech and therefore to be a charity. Now, I have two problems with the ruling, me who has no training in law. First, the charity did no charitable work. That point was made by Justices Hayden and Kiefel. Susan is now Chief Justice of the Court of Australia, High Court of Australia. And two, no one inhibited Aid Watch's free speech. Indeed, an unwitting public subsidised its free speech because it had deductible gift recipient status. Now, is subsidised speech through DGR status free speech? Is opposing coal mining, for example, moral? And yet many environmental charities do so and are subsidised by the public whose views are probably very different. Why does the public subsidise the free speech of charities that argue less than clear moral cases? Now, a number of charities have recently <coughs> argued that they want to return to their Christian purpose. But most of their money comes from a mostly unsuspecting, taxpaying public. Does the taxpayer agree with their purpose? Remember, taxation is compulsory, donations are voluntary. Tax-deducted donations conflate the two. They actually mean that the taxpayer has a say in your charitable purpose. In an, in an example that I know only too well, the post-colonial collective self-determination dream of Aboriginal identity has crueled the lives of tens of thousands of Aborigines caught up in the white man's dream of land rights and public subvention. Why does the public sub sub subsidise such controversial work? Let me conclude. A final word on good and talented people as opposed to the collective uh, into which they may, in some people's minds, fit. Often, and most often, Determined individuals make the difference. The recent film, Hidden Figures, tells the story of three brilliant African-American women at NASA. Catherine Johnson, 
Dorothy Vaughan and Mary Jackson. They were the brains behind the launch of the astronaut John Glenn into orbit. They, probably more so, but as well as US federal legislation, created freedom for blacks. But much remains to be done. Many of the problems of African-Americans are legacy issues, especially the huge rate of single-parent families among African-Americans. The postmodern mind does not have to err to the radical, but it easily fits the urge to criticise all that has gone before, often belittling great achievements and misdiagnosing problems. As students seek to unravel parts of history that do not suit them, will they miss the big picture? One part of which is that Christianity and liberty are closely interwoven. The cynics point to the path of modernity as hell, warring religious and national rivalries. But so is the retreat from, it, from its achievement implicit in postmodernism and its confrere egalitarianism. Liberty is more likely to, to, to deliver the elimination of prejudice and more likely to make differences immaterial. The lesson I would like to teach students is simple. The identity of the achiever matters not nearly as much as the achievement. Thank you. That was Dr. Gary Johns with How the Postmodern Mindset is Destroying Modern Minds. This presentation was part of the Christopher Dawson Centre for Cultural Studies 2017 Colloquium on the theme Liberal Education, Restoring the Notion of Education as the Basis for Living the Good Life, which was hosted in Hobart, Australia. And for more talks, interviews and shows, visit cradio.org.au.